welcome back to the Full Circle Podcast. I'm your host, Gillian McMichael. I'd like to start with a heartfelt thank you to each of you for tuning in week after week. Your support means so much and I'm thrilled that so many people are finding value in the episodes. In fact, I want to share a review that I received from Lisa in South Africa, who shared lovely feedback on Apple Podcasts. She wrote, This podcast came into my life at the perfect moment. I'm on an inward journey of rediscovering my true self, and this podcast has truly inspired me to pursue my authentic path with hope and enthusiasm. Reading reviews like this one have really lifted me and served as a reminder of why I began this podcast in the first place. It was designed to inspire listeners to find their way home to their true and authentic selves. And I am proud that this podcast is doing exactly that. So to each of you who download, subscribe, rate, review, or simply listen once in a while, thank you. If you're joining us, season two is all about the theme of transformation. We all undergo transformations in our lives. We evolve as the years go by, sometimes because we consciously make changes to the way we lead our lives, and other times changes happen without us being aware or prepared for them. But for some of us, we must embark on a transformative journey because if we don't, our lives are in jeopardy. When facing addiction, many individuals make the brave choice to live a life of sobriety, to save themselves, their relationships, and live a life that is full. My guest today, Natasha Blunt, is the woman who embarked on this journey. Two and a half years ago, Natasha reached personal and professional burnout, resulting in a struggle with mental health and addiction. It was a huge turning point for Natasha, and it was then that she embarked on her recovery journey. Natasha will tell you herself, it wasn't easy, but it's certainly been rewarding. Thanks to her experiences, Natasha is motivated by helping others unlock their potential and guiding them towards a life of meaning and purpose. And in fact, she's been working with me to complete her diploma in professional coaching with the ICF. I'm really proud of Natasha for the journey she's taken, and I'm excited for her to share her story with you so she can help inspire and guide those of you who may be struggling and need a transformation of your own. I hope you enjoy this conversation. So welcome, Natasha. I'm delighted to have you on the show. The topic for our conversation today is overcoming addiction. And although I know this is a very difficult topic to talk about, I'm really looking forward to you sharing your story on how you have overcome addiction and how you've transformed your life. So welcome. <laughs> Thanks, Gillian. <laughs> so tell me a little bit more then about when you noticed or when you knew that you had an addiction. Now, you know, that's always quite an interesting question because uh, more often than not, us addicts don't know we have an addiction. Um, <laughs> uh, and I think when you're feeling yourself, it's easy to fool others. Um, I mean, if you asked me when I went into treatment, I would have said probably a year or two previously. But once I entered the program of recovery, I realized I'd actually been in active addict addiction for multiple decades. That's quite a shock. But the thing is, is I had 
really good jobs. I had a mortgage. I had a career. I traveled the world. I was successful by, you know, normal standards. I'm doing inverted comma signs. Um, and, you know, while I was able to sustain these things, I felt like I was normal. I didn't feel like there was anything wrong. You know, I was doing all the things that normal people do. But, you know, eventually you are going to reach that burnout. And once you realize that you're starting to use to function and to, to be OK, to seem OK and seem on top of stuff. Yet for some reason, you've worked all these years, you've done really well and your finances are a bit of a mess and, you know, you're exhausted and becoming paranoid and you've lost your sense of purpose. Well, that for me was when I I started really feeling that there was something that was just not right. And, you know, full transparency at that point, then everything turned on its head. And actually, it was my addiction that was leading my choices, where I went, what I did, what I chose to work on, how I socialized. But again, in my head, it was all around my uh, my job in business development or marketing and being a front man and socializing and networking you know, but but it still came along with that. You know, it it, it satis- my job satisfied my habit. And it's interesting you said there that, you know, you'd gone in for treatment a couple of years earlier. And it's like you said that that was that realisation, that dawning that actually had been like this for multiple decades, you said. Yeah. What impact did that have on you at the time when you recognised and realised that? Everything. Everything comes at once. I mean, I think you you have this enormous sense of of shame, I think, is probably the first thing that, that you kind of become engulfed in. I mean, you, I was kind of feeling engulfed by it once I started realising I had a problem because, you know, what I know now is not what I knew then, and that is there is no shame in addiction. It's okay and you can recover. But we're taught that addiction is reflective of, you know, some dirty heroin junkie behind a dumpster in a you know in an alleyway and you know what that person is a person too and when you go into the rooms or you go into treatment you have conversations with people and all the themes are the same whether they're middle class successful accountants or they're homeless so i think going back to your question yeah there was a lot of shame um, a lot of confusion because, you know, the reality of actually looking at yourself that deeply and realizing that, you know, this has been a habit in many areas, whether it's alcohol, drugs, shopping, um, food, eating disorders, you know, it runs the gamut. For some it's gambling. That became your coping mechanism at such an early age. Yet I managed to slot it in and around all my other normal stuff. Um, so there was guilt as well. There was, uh, you know, that sense of, of, of feeling like I'd let myself down as well as letting others down. I think, you know, there's something I was told when I went into treatment and it was, uh, you know, when I went into recovery and it was uh, the best thing about recovery is you get your feelings back. And the worst thing about recovery is you get your feelings back. So when you asked me how I felt, oh, my God, I could I could oh, open a scroll and list a lot. But but that sounds terribly sad and negative, And it's not a, a victim state I'm purporting here. You know, these are just all the things that come to the fore 
that then you have to to work through and and address. Of course. So you you said obviously you kind of you know the addiction was potentially tied up in the work that you was doing and vice versa and stuff. But when did you actually recognise that perhaps this was taking over for you and it wasn't serving you well? When I really realised that it was getting out of control was when my godfather passed away, and that was quite symbolic of what was really causing all of this because you know I've said before that I thought it was my work and the pressures at play, but that was just the story I was telling myself. When my godfather passed away, it was like somebody flicked the domino that finally knocked everything down. My godfather was my father's best friend uh, and cousin, and I lost my father in my early 20s. My father obviously was married to my mother, and I lost my mother when I was five. And that was when the Pandora's box opened and all of this sort of, you know, hidden and ignored stuff that I had been keeping inside me for so long um, sort of came to the fore and I couldn't get rid of these feelings anymore. There was nothing I could do to control it in inverted commas uh, because addiction and, and substance use or, or any, any type of addiction is about taking feelings away, taking sadness away, anger, fear, whatever it might be. Um, and that's your coping strategy. And because you haven't got any other coping strategies, that's your go-to. And and you mentioned there, obviously, that you lost your mum as well. And so were there, were there other things that had kind of triggered you throughout your younger years that then may have also helped with the addiction process? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, I, I also would add here, by the way, that I didn't learn any of this until I was in my 40s. You know, I, I thought I had it all sussed. I knew my story because we all create our stories, don't we? Um, and, and and whether they're uncomfortable or not, we find comfort in them. And so we, we hold on to that, you know, you know, that's when the ego is really at play, you know, and, and the definition of addiction, by the way, is obsessive, compul- compulsive, self-centered fear. So, uh, you know, there you are in active addition, addiction, <laughs> obsessive, compulsive and self-centered and fearful, um, you know, and suddenly this this straw that breaks the camel's back comes out of nowhere. But what I really discovered in treatment is it wasn't just the loss of my parents that I'd really sort of addressed. It was also multiple others that I lost in my life were constant triggers for that sense of loss. But also I was adopted. And I completely believed all of my life that that had never affect me affected me you know because I was a baby when it happened because I was tiny but when I began the deeper work um, in treatment I did a lot of reading and that was when I learned how traumatized I was from an early age from when I came into the world and so I was starting the beginning of my life in trauma without even realizing it. And all of these other events just started reinforcing the core beliefs that I formed. And when we talk about adoption, we always talk about the trauma of the mother having to give their child up. Then we talk about the love and the generosity of the adoptive parents, the sacrifices and challenges they face. But, you know, I'm a child of the 70s and science then was not as we know it now. Um, And there have been multiple studies that show that when a baby is literally born, when it comes out of the womb, it immediately knows who its mother is because that's the center of their life. They haven't formed their identity yet. They don't know who they are. They've just suddenly come out of this nice, warm, enclosed space screaming into this big old world. And it's like, who's going to feed me? Who's going to keep me safe? So, of course, you're going to 
feel ripped away from that. Now, I'd also add, by the way, that nobody in my life did anything to me deliberately to hurt me. I'm not, again, I say I'm not a victim in in all of this. It's just the way the cards were dealt. But what I didn't realize is how much that affected me. And then three, four years later, my adoptive mother passed away. So from a very early age, I started shaping these core beliefs of I'm not good enough. I don't belong. I'm not supposed to be here. People don't want me. But, you know, I can say that as an adult. I can post rationalize because I have the language. I have the verbal ability to say that now. But as a child, I didn't. And I wouldn't have understood that. And I wouldn't have ever been able to explain it. So it sat inside me and it informed everything in me you know and how I sort of grew up and you know I developed a massive hypervigilance and that manifested in some quite manic behaviors as as a child and a teenager but then in some ways it served me well for a while because I turned into a massive overachiever and a crowd pleaser and I became successful academically and successful on stage and successful in my career but what happened then is I began to seek my validation in the external and you can't control people, places or things. So if you remove that and your validation is attached to all of that external stuff, then what's happening inside for you? And so all of that run up to my mid 40s, you know, and to suddenly discover, wow, you know, because I remember walking around going, it's made me the person I am as if it was a huge positive. And it has been a huge positive in some ways, because it's taught me to be resilient. It's taught me to be resourceful. It's taught me I'm a survivor and I can, I can do more than I realized. But it also took me to treatment you know so it's 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 a double-edged sword and you know I think also to add there you know with some people you know who don't necessarily have addictive tendencies it might not necessarily manifest for them in that way so I don't want to frighten anyone listening to this but it just so happened for me that's what it did and my addiction really started when I was sort of probably in my early teens when I took my first drink by the time I was 17 18 I was dabbling in substances you know, um, and by the time I was in my 20s, you know, I don't remember a time that I've ever socialized without using something, even if it's just a glass of wine, you know, and and that became the norm for me. Um, But over decades, it progressed. You know, some people progress really slowly, and it's noticeable, you know, but I'm a trained actress, I'm a sales director, you know, I'm a public speaker. So, you know, you add all those layers on top of also how manipulative and able and chameleon both adoptees and addicts are, then there was no way anyone was going to notice until eventually I just raised my hand and went, "Ah, I'm not okay. Thank you for sharing all of that. And it's really insightful as you've been speaking there, because I can hear that sense of this real thing. I, you know, I don't want to be treated as a victim or seen as a victim but yeah actually there's a real struggle there as well in terms of all the stuff they've shared and just in just in terms of how you even arrived into the world and then how you navigated yourself up into that point so at that point when you put your hand up when you've kind of really started to acknowledge what was going on and I would imagine that there are aspects of like you've said there was other feelings like guilt and shame and things like that but even before that this is me making maybe an assumption but I would imagine there's some denial at some point and ignoring it until like you said you kind of finally put your hand up and say actually there's there's an issue here so was there a pivotal moment that made you then stick your hand up what what was that 
Yeah, I think there's two parts to, to what you're saying there, because denial is is absolutely key in addiction. And, and there is a sense that every single addict I've ever met or spoken to, and every textbook will tell you that we'll be going, tomorrow I'll stop. Tomorrow I won't do it again. Tomorrow I won't pick this up. Tomorrow. And tomorrow happens. And then you can say, tomorrow I won't do it. Tomorrow. And so it becomes this how long is a piece of string and and that feeds your denial you know and when your addiction is really embedded in you you don't even know it's there I mean I actually have a name for my addiction he's called Barry the barrister because he's super clever and can rationalize anything <laughs> either pre or post um and I I'm sorry for anyone called Barry but it's not my most favorite name because it reminds me of somebody I met once that's why I called him Barry and he's he's not a woman either um but anyway Barry the barrister actually crept in after three months of treatment for me and I remember I was I was unpacking my stuff in my new place I'll tell you about that in a bit probably where I ended up and uh, and and I heard this voice going in my head and it was like oh you've done really well and I was like conscious me oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah I know thanks feeling a bit proud yeah I've done it I've done three months in treatment I'm gonna beat this this is my new life but no really really you have you, you've done brilliantly. I know. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. I've done okay. Keep going. Yeah. You keep going. And then it goes, you don't think you're being a bit dramatic, do you? I mean, if you can stop for three months and that is like that little crack in the window where your addiction and your denial starts to come back and starts to offer you the opportunity to go, well, okay, if I can do it for three months, then I obviously don't have a problem. Well, I was running on self-will and every single decision I made up until the point I walked into treatment took me to treatment. So there's obviously something going on there. So I think that was the first part of your question, which was about, you know, was there an element of d denial? Then you asked me also, you know, when did I realise that, that this was happening? And, 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 and I raised my hand and um, I remember it very clearly and... Uh, <laughs> No, it's really important to keep a sense of humour and recovery, by the way. No word of a lie. It was May Day weekend. So the day I raised my hand was literally May Day. Um, and I was in an awful state. Uh, you know, I don't need to get into the war story, but I'd had a particularly large weekend. Let's put it like that. I had missed uh, a train to go and see a friend of mine. I had an issue because my bank card had been stolen and then suddenly that had highlighted some other stuff that was going on. And suddenly everything just felt just like I just couldn't do it anymore. I couldn't spin any more plates. I couldn't spin any more yarns. I couldn't convince myself or anybody else that anything was okay. There were no excuses I could make up for the state I was in that weekend, the reason I hadn't turned up, the reason I'd lost my bank card. Thank God I'd only lost my bank card. You know, I mean, there are other people who have ended up in jail or institutions or have died, you know, and I was so close. And I remember looking and this is this is the irony, you know, there I was still in my very nice flat in Wandsworth overlooking the river and genuinely contemplating whether it would be easier to jump off the bridge or phone up my friend and tell her what was going on. And I told one of my girlfriends and she told my other girlfriend. And between the two of them, they scooped me up. They found me a place to go for treatment. They 
made sure that, you know, the mortgage was paid and that things would tick along while I was in there. They helped me set up my new life when I came out. They shored up my finances until I was able to stand on my own two feet, basically. And, you know, when somebody does something like that for you, when you've been in such a point of utter despair, guilt, shame, uh, self-loathing and all of the other things that come with it, it's the first insight into the fact that really you're not that terrible a person and there isn't any shame in it and actually people do love you and believe in you and actually all you needed to do was raise your hand and ask for help it's interesting isn't it because i suppose at the time that's like you said it was such a big decision do i take an alternative route or do i be honest with friends that know me and i suppose that that is a big decision isn't it at the time to suppose to share what's going on on the inside yeah you know? i mean i think you know if you get to a point in your life where the only other option is suicide versus telling people what's wrong, you know, and, and it feels like suicide is an easier option. That's quite some depth to get to. But for some reason, there was something left in me that went that recognized that and went, it can't be, that can't be it, you know, and, 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 and so it wasn't, thank God it wasn't. And, you know, and, and there began my journey, really. And so that journey, obviously, you talked before and you said it brought back a lot of feelings at the beginning, the impact in terms of that sense of, you know, feeling uh, shame, guilt and a range of other different feelings, most probably depression maybe as well. I don't know. Those are my words, not yours, but that sense of kind of really kind of low. Um, And I would imagine that with all of that does bring additional stress and strain because, as you said, you know, you then start talking, although you've been hiding your feelings, you then have to start <laughs> yeah. feel, feeling your feelings, yeah. as you described earlier on in the conversation. There's a kind of, there's an approach to addiction, which starts with how do we arrest this? How do we prevent relapse? How do we help with the most basic of tools to get you to that point? Then once we've got you to that point and we feel like we've arrested the progression of this disease, what do we need to do? to maintain that recovery and to to move forwards and that's when you really have to start looking beneath the surface you know i mean there are some great rehabs that will will work with you for 28 days and detox you but it's doing the deeper work or it's going into a fellowship like na or ca or aa and working the steps you know if you can't afford treatment there are programs out there that can help you on that journey but it's definitely that's I was going to say that's when the hard work began. It's not. It's it is it is different. It's different for everyone. But for me, I think that's where the hard work began because I had so much to unpick. I'd created such a an external narrative and story for myself that every single person around me bought into, apart from those two girlfriends of mine who knew me better, you know, who I thought I'd managed to 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 get one over on as well. They weren't having any of it. They would they their response was, <laughs> we've been waiting for you to ask for help. We're here, you know. And then so begins the process, you know, what what triggered it? You know, and I, I mean I talked a little bit about the loss of my parents and and then my adoption. You know, and, you know, then when my mother had died later on, my father remarried, we were uprooted, we moved up to Scotland. So we were completely the opposite end of the country from where I grew up, you know, and then when my father died, the dynamic shifted again, you know, my family splintered. And that's when I met my biological mother. And at that point, she told me that she had a terminal illness, 
So my mother who had turned up, you know, and had to then give me away, then turned up and was leaving again. So that was a massive trigger in my 20s and 30s. So as I'm picking that and understanding that, you know, sometimes when somebody presents themselves in front of us in the moment, it's not really them that we're angry at. It's triggering a whole load of other stuff that you're angry at from a very long time ago. And then it's absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And then it's working to join those dots and to understand how that all plays into the end result, which was using something to take away my feelings. You mentioned before about Barry. I'm going to use Barry's name if that's all right. Barry the barrister. And, you know, that sense of that voice. And I haven't been through this, so I don't know. I, I can't make any assumptions that I know what the experience is like at all. But I am curious around how you kept Barry's voice quiet. I suppose it's the ego in many respects, you know, that kind of sense of it coming through and him telling you, well, if you can do it for three months, then it'd be fine. But so how did you manage to quiet that voice? through your treatment at that point I understood what was happening there and that's actually where the science of addiction in the brain comes in and what happens is we build these neural pathways so it's like driving a car riding a bike brushing our teeth we can eventually do it subconsciously without thinking and so what happens in in addiction is and uh, you know and especially if you're predisposed to addiction what happens is something triggers of picking up a drink so it might be oh my god I just got a new job I'll have a drink then it could be oh god I've just been dumped I'm gonna have a drink oh I've uh, just closed this deal at work I'll go and have a drink and over time your neural pathways are built in your brain over and over and over and over that this is the response that you should have. You know, it is it is the solution. So what happens is we never lose those pathways. We just have to build new ones on top. And so addiction does become, you know, Barry's voice I didn't hear because I lived in Barry's world all the time. It was learning later that I'd been in that world and not in the world I was sitting in with you now. And it does sound quite strange, but it doesn't sound strange to an addict. So it it actually is about listening to yourself. The other things that came into play were learning what was a story in my head and what was actually real, you know, and, and daily I used to write, I noticed my mind having a story that because a story creates a feeling and a feeling triggers an action or a behavior. And so again, that's the addiction in the brain piece. And then what you have to do is start working on rewriting those neural pathways. So what do you do instead? So instead of saying, uh, it's sort of temporal framing, they call it in in um, in psychology and, and treatment. In, instead of saying tomorrow I'll stop, it's just for today. I'm not going to, but tomorrow I will. Just that in itself, turning it on its head, means that when you get to tomorrow, you can the day after. Just as if you're going to stop tomorrow, you get to the next day and tomorrow you have to stop. It's literally reversing it. And all of these start building new neural pathways in your brain. There's lots of other things as well. Practicing gratitude, you know, makes you feel extremely wealthy because what happens is your addiction will start looking for reasons to be sad, to be angry, to be depressed, to go and pick up. And, you know, it could be a myriad of things, but actually practicing gratitude for what you have in front of you, even the simplest things. I used to write a gratitude list, five things a day, every day. And it it got ridiculous because I started running out of things, but it was like, I'm grateful for my mug. I'm grateful for my pen. I'm grateful for my roof. I'm grateful for my bed. But over time, you convince your brain how wealthy you actually are. 
You know, I'm abundant. I have all this stuff. You know, I have all of this. And the other thing is about valuing yourself. And what we tend to do is we we value what we think is positive and what society tells us is positive and we shut away the other stuff. So actually writing my values out, I value my persistence. I value my duplicity, which could be perceived as a negative, but it could be a skill set. You know, I value my arrogance I value my kind-heartedness. I value my creativity. I value my anger. All of those things are are bringing you back to a whole self and saying, I am okay. Um, And the other thing too is, is about feelings. You know, when we're happy, we never, ever go, why are you so happy to someone? You know, do we? We don't even question (laughs) it. We just go, yay, that's great. But we grow up learning that sadness is bad, anger is bad, fear is bad, anxiety is bad. And so we judge our emotions and we get stuck in them. So we tell ourselves a story, it creates fear and anxiety, and then we sit in that fear and anxiety, you know, and that's when you find yourself either living in the past or worrying about what's going to happen in the future. And you've got absolutely no idea what's going on in the present. And what's going in the, on in the present is it's a feeling, it's a thought, and it's going to pass. And something else is going to come along again. Yeah. And it's so interesting, isn't it? Because obviously, I mean, really, you're retraining the brain, as you said, through creating these new kind of different kind of neuropathways to think differently, to feel differently, but also equally at the same time, of sounds like to me, really kind of acknowledging how you feel rather than trying to suppress the feelings. So you mentioned their mindfulness and, and, and so forth, and you gave a whole long list of things that has kind of helped, sounds like it's helped you through the transformation. So what would you say has been the biggest transformation that you've noticed within yourself since going through this process to where you are now? The thing about transformation is that you don't suddenly wake up one morning and go, oh, my God, everything's okay," You know, oh, look, that's great. I'm here. I'm transformed. Thanks, guys. Let's have a party. Um, It's uh, with no alcohol, obviously. Um, But it's not like that. It's it's very incremental. And I think, you know, for me, I was always such an overachiever that I was always setting goals that were visible. And they were big, whether it was a sales target, whether it was getting an audition when I was acting, whether it was whatever it was. It didn't, doesn't matter what it was. But the thing is, is it was always the goal. It was never the incremental journey to get there. And the thing is, is what you realize is, and I, I know I, I, it sounds like a cliche, but I can't help it. The journey is the destination. It just is, you know, and invariably you may set yourself a direction to move in and that's great you know let's do that but what's what is what's the incremental stuff to get you there and also it may change on the way because you may open like it's like that onion you know uh, thing you know I, I remember I pick up this onion and I look at it and I peel back one layer and I go oh that's quite nice under there oh I like that oh yeah okay good excellent so that's one little incremental bit then I pull back the next layer and I'm like ah put it down I don't want that but you know it's it's the biggest transformation is having the faith and the ability to keep going and to trust that I'm going to be okay and that you know if I feel angry tomorrow morning I'm gonna let myself be angry and it will be gone in about five minutes if I try and push it down 
other behaviors are going to crop up, other reasons. I'll get my Rolodex out for reasons why I'm angry, because I start to try and fix the problem with the brain that created the problem. That's insanity in itself. (laughs) But the days that I do have those days, what I can do now is I can look back if I want to look in the past and go, look where you are now. Now you found your meaning and purpose again. And that was the other thing I wanted to add, actually, that that's been the biggest, most noticeable thing for me that has sort of stuck a flag in the sand with my recovery and my transformation. You know, it's so important to find a purpose or some meaning because that's what drives you forward, you know. And when I wake up in the morning now, I'm excited to get up. I can't wait. You know, I've started, you know, in terms of the consulting work I do, I only work with businesses that have a purpose and transform lives, whether it's through well-being, creativity or technology. But my ultimate purpose, I've realised thank you, Gillian, is to become a coach. Because, you know, when I found my meaning and purpose, and when I found my way home back to myself, I knew that I just really wanted to help others. Once I started asking for help, it's amazing. You can raise your hand once and all sorts of things shift. It creates the space for so much to come into your life. And now I I feel that everything I've been through led me to this point, and it's my turn to now help someone else help themselves. And I think it's so interesting. I'm very glad you raised your hand too, (laughs) rather than keep it down. Um, But um, in terms of obviously you're doing the coaching journey and I know that you're training with me and you're near enough becoming a professional coach as it is at this moment in time. But also you um, also help other people though, don't you, through similar experiences. So just quickly, would you mind sharing just a few points around how you're helping those other people who are maybe more challenged with some of the same issues. Yeah, in in my day to day, I'm still part of um of one of one of our fellowships. They are remaining anonymous, so I won't tell you which one. But there are fellowships out there: Narcotics Anonymous, Alcoholics Anonymous, Cocaine Anonymous, various ones that uh, that you can go to that have meetings regularly. So if you are thinking you may be worried that something's going on, then reach out. You can find them online. There are meetings going on all the time, everywhere, all over the UK. And each of them have 12 steps programs. And within those uh, environments, you can find a sponsor who will work with you and work through the 12 steps. So I sponsor people. In terms of my outside worky world, my worky world, um, I actually, (laughs) I now work for my old treatment centre. And I'm laughing because when I told my friend I'd got uh, some work there, they went, you're the only person that can go into treatment and come out with a job. And I was like, no, actually, to be (laughs) fair, most people that work there have been through what I've been through. And quite a few of them went there. So it's not just me. But what I do is I now help with uh, various things around marketing and fundraising for them. And then in my coaching world, as as much as I, I'm starting to work with people in the business world and workplace coaching, I'm also working with individuals who have been through what I've been through, who are you know, quite high functioning, sitting in jobs now or coming out of those jobs or coming out of recovery, uh, you know, or coming into recovery and going, God, what do I do next? How did I end up there? And what do I do to keep moving forwards? I think being able to walk that talk uh, is quite valuable. Absolutely. And with all of the work that you're doing, you mentioned just a moment ago, though, that actually you kind of found your purpose. So could you, would you mind sharing what your purpose 
is yeah i mean my purpose is to uh is to help others find their meaning and purpose it's really that simple you know and and that's why i was so thrilled when you invited me to to come and speak on this podcast because you know i really do describe it as my journey is finding my way home and and i'm very much aligned with with what you do and what you stand for i remember the first time i ever saw your website i was like i'm going here (laughs) this works this makes sense to me so yeah so thank you for that because i was a bit worried i was going to end up in corporate coaching land you know being anthony robbins and that was not what i was put here for (laughs) amazing and i think it's it's lovely isn't it when you kind of can start to articulate that purpose and then start to follow and walk that path as you're so rightly doing now which is which is amazing so just before we wrap up i've just got kind of one more question actually if that's okay so if people wanted to find out where you were and get hold of you where can they do that well i've i've been a bit i've been a bit low-key actually while i've been rebuilding my life and making some different choices (laughs) so uh actually you could probably find me on linkedin Natasha Blunt on LinkedIn and it will say that I'm a coach on there uh, if you don't mind Gillian they could find you probably through full find me through full circle and in the new year I will then finally have my website up and we'll be starting to uh, to be a bit more front-facing with everything that I'm doing thank you I just want to say thanks so much what an amazing journey you've been on and so much strength and commitment to your recovery I appreciate it's going to be a it's going to be continued in terms of regular practice at this as you've described but I want to just you know really acknowledge you for what you've shared today and I'm sure everyone who's listening to this like me will be inspired by what you've achieved in the last two and a half years to where you are today so thank you for sharing all of that and thanks for chatting to me it's been lovely I've really enjoyed it thanks Natasha thank you thanks for tuning in I'd love to take a moment and tell you about our wellness retreats that will be happening in May 2022 in Mallorca, Spain. My team and I have created four immersive retreats that allows you to take a step back from all the stresses and strains of your daily life in order to focus on your physical, mental, emotional and spiritual well-being. From coaching mastery, mindfulness and meditation, conscious living, and so much more, we offer a nurturing and truly experiential life-enriching environment where you'll reconnect, rediscover, and reaffirm who you are and what you want in your life. If you're interested in learning more, head to the fullcircleglobal.com website and click the Retreats tab. In the meantime, stay well, invite joy and curiosity into your life. See you soon.